We just live right now, man. It's going down, excited for the season. You know, we coming off a playoff win. I mean, you know, we had a couple wins. You're in a lot of trouble, and maybe it's because... Well, sorry, Canada. Ah, <laughs> 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 Toronto. And because Philly sucks. I feel like I fear Boston most of all out of any of the Eastern Conference teams. Nah. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Nah. Hello and welcome to the Brew Hoop Podcast, episode 73. I'm Adam Paris, co-managing editor of brewhoop.com, joined as per usual by the fellas Kyle Carr and Riley Feldman. Guys, how are you doing today? Doing pretty good. I uh, had a little bit of a chance encounter with one of my personal heroes, which we'll get into later this past week. Uh, I accidentally cut like a pretty deep groove into my thumb while I was chopping up some onions. So I didn't lop a part of my thumb off, which is good, but uh, that's healing right now. So besides those two things, uh, you know, slow and steady, usual things over here in Minnesota. Adam, Wisconsin, um, the usual COVID cases are way too high for my own liking. Um, the baby is going through another round of teething, so no sleep in the last 24 hours. That's always good, and I can't wait for everything that we talk about today to be completely irrelevant on Wednesday. And when you talk about irrelevant stuff, that's what the, that's how you know we're talking about the NBA draft, which is upcoming. <laughs> and as we all know, the Bucks traded their pick last year. They're out a couple picks in the future. Uh, this year, just thanks to the trade, the sign and trade they made last year uh, with the Indiana Pacers, thankfully they do have a selection in this year's draft, number 24. Uh, but we will get into the draft talk later. I'm looking forward to that. Let's start off real quick because the uh, trades, it's just came across that apparently trades will be able to start on Monday. What, what is that? What is tomorrow? The 16th on the 16th. So I was just going to run through with you guys a few of the the rumors, and as we all know, these are rumors from a couple different sources that people have seen on Twitter about potential targets the Bucks may be looking at. Uh, so we have to sort of couch this in as many ways as possible. So just a couple of the guys, I just want to see if they any of them pique your interest. So Kevin O'Connor reportedly said that the Bucks might be interested in, in Robert Covington and P.J. Tucker, as well as Patty Mills of the Spurs. Sam Amico, whatever you want to say about that, said the Bucks might have interest in Aaron Gordon. That one seems a little weird. I don't believe that one quite as much, but uh, whatever. There is the past relationship uh, between the two front offices, so maybe there's something there. Um, and then Zach Lowe, obviously we talked about this a little bit with Mitchell last week, but also had mentioned the Bogdan Bogdanovich, uh, Harrison Barnes potential trade with the Kings. So, I don't know, Kyle, out of any of those, did any of them pique your interest or did any of them even seem realistic to you? The one that seems realistic is the Bogdan one, mainly because it comes from Zach Lowe, and Zach Lowe is probably, out of the people that have been mentioned, is the only one that I really trust. I mean, Kevin O'Connor seems to know what's going on. He is very knowledgeable, but it feels like rumors coming from him are just more speculation that could, that makes sense, at least in theory. Uh, so yeah, the Bogdan one seems to be the one that's gained the most traction. I think Low reported on it. I think Shams mentioned it, you know, a couple weeks prior. So that one seems to be, and that seems like a realistic option that the Bucks could do is just do a sign and trade with the Kings. How they make that trade work, I don't know. But I mean, Patty Mills would be an intriguing one, as we talked about last week. He would be a very good fit. 
he would be someone that could be an upgrade and you might be able to keep some of your assets and just, you know, trade Eric Bledsoe only, or at least trade Eric Bledsoe and DJ Wilson or Ursad. But I, I don't know how realistic it is. Aaron Gordon, I'm not giving any grain of salt to it because I, it makes absolutely no sense why you would take someone with that salary to do exactly what Giannis does, but in a much worse way. <laughs> um, and then coming to PJ Tucker, while that would be nice, again, I just don't see how realistic that one would be. So I would say the Bogdan one looks to be legit and the Patty Mills one I would like to happen. I tend to agree with Kyle across the whole board of, of the ones I would say Patty Mills is probably what I would be most excited about. Like if you went into this off season and said, we can get Patty Mills and you just trade Eric Bledsoe plus like, like you said, Kyle, either DJ or Ursan or whatever combination, I'd be like, wow, that was a huge win for us. Like we, we were able to get that different of a stylistic point guard compared to Eric Bledsoe, like offensively, just a whole different, and now whether or not that fits all that well with like what Bud wants to do. I mean, I think it would be helpful to force Bud's hands as we've talked uh, ad nauseum over the off season to like, just give him different tools and force him to do something different. Um, so I, I would agree that Patty Mills is probably the one that I would be most interested in. Um, Aaron Gordon makes no sense at all. I appreciate Adam that you put in the context that one Western conference exec told Sam Amico that the Bucks were interested, which seems to me, it could have been like a janitor at like the front <laughs> office of like the Denver nuggets or something who like saw a piece of paper with Sharpie on it. It was like, Hmm, I'm, I'm going to let somebody know what's going on here. Otherwise, um, I, I think the issue with like the Robert Covington, PJ Tucker, like PJ Tucker's aging and like he's an interesting guy because he plays a lot of small ball so maybe that'd be an interesting fit for like a small ball lineup with Giannis but I think people are already concerned a little bit when Robert Covington was touted last season when the Wolves were trying to trade him like well how does that fit with Giannis he's a little too light to like make it work as like a in a small ball lineup and then the issue with the Bogdan and Harrison Barnes I'm intrigued by that too but as Mitchell talked about last week the issue there is they make that deal and they get hard capped. And so the sequence with which they need to make that deal in order to make sure they have enough warm bodies to fill out the rest of the roster instead of doing it and then getting hard capped at like 12 dudes. Um, that's the one thing that throws me off from that deal. And maybe that's the case for all of these. I'm not sure the cap implications, but that's what's kind of holding me back from they're going to be executing a trade the second that the, the um, moratorium lifts just because it seems like from everything we've gathered, the timeline has to be very exact for them to be able to put together like a full roster. So that's the only thing throwing me off from any of these rumors. But um, the only one I guess I'd be really mad at is like Aaron Gordon, depending on what they have to give up. So I don't know. Yeah, the Aaron Gordon one, we're just going to throw out. The <laughs> one is interesting. As we've talked about, <clears throat> like we said, potentially Horst feeling like he has to come in and bring in someone else to force, force Bud ha- Bud's hand. It's kind of like when... I forget if that was horse the GM when kid like kept playing Gary Payton the second or something. And he just, he would like even mm. him in the starting lineup and stuff. And then eventually he just like, just waved him or something, got rid of him. I'm going to go look right now. Just that might have been, yeah. That might've been year one of horse. Yeah. Kind of feel, feels a little bit like that situation. Um, I, I agree. The Patty Mills one is interesting. I'm very, very curious to see what kind of approach uh, I, I and I mean, I know the Bucks are can be included in rumors, but it did feel a little interesting to me that they're included in so many rumors, especially given how often. And I mean, part of it could be, like you guys said, I mean, the one I put the most credence to is low. But even low, I mean, 
led his offseason primer with the Bucks because of Giannis mostly, but then also had several speculative things, which seems to indicate that potentially they're interested in doing something. So part of it could be that. But another part of it is when these transactions have happened, basically with Horst, they do seem to come basically out of nowhere. I mean, the, the Bledsoe one, I don't remember the Bucks even being rumored as a place necessarily. Then all of a sudden it was like Greg Monroe's heading, heading to Phoenix along with the first round pick and we're getting there. Bledsoe. Um, the set the trade deadlines ones where we picked up, uh, I think Miritich, I think Miritich was because there was like an arms race at the last second before the deadline. Like, Oh, it was, I don't know if it was like, it was us. And I think one other team that were like trying to up the offers or whatever. And we ended up, what threw us off was we traded for Stanley Johnson because we were getting hyped, like, oh, Miritich is coming. Then we got Stanley Johnson. I was like, okay, that's, that's going to be fine, too. And then we ended up rerouting him for Miritich. But I think Miritich was somewhat touted in the lead-up, at least the week beforehand that the Bucks were interested, I'm pretty sure. I think the George Hill one came out of nowhere, if I yeah, remember. Yeah, came like, that one was like, oh, we got George Hill. Oh, we got rid of Delhi and – Wow. Okay, horse. Good job. You got. And I think I, I think there was another one where didn't we get like Sam Decker, and we we're like Sam Decker's a buck now, and then we like rerouted him to uh, Washington for uh, a bunch of picks. Well, because we got we took on like Jody Meek's salary, but we got a yes. second round pick out of it, and then eventually we used that for Mirantage. That was like yeah. the height of John Heist when he was like making a ton of like small little moves, which is I guess what's sort of depressing now because we're so locked in, and so many of our picks are out because like we can't even do minor cap minutia moves to like add some more assets or we haven't in a long time um so i think that that whole like season leading up to john horse executive of the year is like when you buy me like oh my god this guy makes like all the little margin deals he's like doing 8d chess to like build us out to get like george hill or whatever for essentially nothing like you know there's a whole bunch of different areas which is kind of makes you interested in it seems like horse isn't afraid to get involved when trades are available and so um, I think even if none of these deals that we're touting right now happen, I'm sure there's probably going to be something coming across the line just because all the stars are aligned to make that happen. Yeah, and I feel like horse horse trades always at least you can talk yourself into, yes, this makes complete sense, or this was a good trade. You can at least talk yourself into it or say it was a good trade. Now, obviously, there's some like last year with Tony Snell being tr- traded for John Lohr and the and the first round pick. It was like, okay. I get why you have to do it. You have to get off of the salary. You can waive John Lohr, whatever. But it seems like, you know, getting George Hill, that was what I think we all agree was a good trade. I think the Miritich trade, while it didn't work, you can at least say it was the right idea. It just didn't work out. And I think that's what is going to be interesting. This go around is whatever trade horse makes, it's probably going to be another. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I mean, we'll all just say, yes, you had to do it because if you trade blood, so then everyone's going to be like, yes, you had to do that horse. It might not work, but <laughs> it might not work, but you had to do it. We understand it. So it's just, it'll be, I'm curious to see what he's going to do. And maybe, you know, someone like Brooke gets traded. Maybe George Hill's the one that gets traded for a couple guys. If you have that Bogdan signing where you got to clear up some salary and you can trade George Hill and just get like three whatever guys to fill out the roster. I don't know. That's going to be horse likes a good deal and he'll probably, he's going to have to make a trade this week. It's just a matter of who is going to be the one. Yeah. I'm curious if he'll make a trade this week or if he'll wait a little, because the, the trades that we were talking about where they came out of nowhere, which were, I would say his most successful trades, which were the, the Bledsoe and the Henson and Delhi offloading contracts. 
were like basically right when the season started or, or within like a month of the season yeah. starting. So I'm, I wonder if he will, uh, if he'll wait a bit or if like you were saying, Riley, because of the, how they have to do the sequencing of, of, of events and like re-signing people. Um, I'm curious how that's going to go in terms of how he'll approach this whole entire off season and how he'll sequence all of his transactions. I agree with that. And another aspect that I'm kind of wondering too is part of the issue with a lot of these rumors is we haven't really heard what other teams would want back as well. And I think because the timeline for transactions is going to be so shortened because it opens Monday afternoon, the draft is on Wednesday, and then free agency opens on Friday, I think is how things are going to go this week. There's going to be probably a lot of teams that are looking to dupe somebody or get, uh, you know, charge a way higher price than you would expect. And so there might be a situation where we, the fans, have to sit tight. You know, John Horst might be looking, he, he and the team might understand we have to probably move Eric. We have to look for an upgrade there. But right now, given what the marketplace looks like, like it's just the price is going to be too high for any sort of whether that be hard capping ourselves or like giving up too many other players, like having to give up Dante and a pick or something to like get maybe an upgrade. And so I wouldn't be surprised if this week they don't do a trade and they hold off either until the season or once teams kind of settle down a little bit more with what their structure is going to be and see what is like the flotsam and the jetsam and then work it out from there. I, there's a lot of different options. I'm going to try and be patient. I would advise everybody uh, to be patient. It sounds like for the most part, they're quite aware that Eric needs to go one way or the other. Um, so I'm not going to be too concerned, even if Eric is on the roster, because you're going to have the entire regular season up until the trade deadline to make a move as well. Um, so that's just going to be, there's a lot of different, you know, different forces and pressures pushing them in certain directions. If they don't pull the trigger right away, that's not concerning necessarily. I have faith that they'll have some sort of plan heading forward to make something happen. Yeah. And I kind of wonder if Giannis decision on the supermax or I don't know if Giannis is going to say you have until X yeah. date to make a decision. Cause I feel like the second the bucks get, they're going to make the offer regardless. They're going to say, here's the offer. Here you go. We can officially say we're doing it, whatever. But if you and I think Giannis has until the 21st of December, uh, just cause that's when the season starts. So if Giannis says, you know, okay, I'll give you, you know, Give it. I'll give you a few weeks. See what you do. Maybe Horse will then wait a bit before making a trade. But if you know Horse wants to make the move to really solidify, yes, we are trying, and Giannis can make that decision sooner. I think Horse will try and make a trade this week, just so there's not too much speculation. There's not too much because I think the last thing anyone, including Giannis, wants to do is drag their feet in the Supermax decision. And maybe Horse says, "I'm trying." to trade Bledsoe, but there's just not a good deal out there. Or we are, we're in the works with this deal. We just got to make the cap work and figure out how to sign a trade. Work. Maybe then there'll be some patience, but yeah, like Riley said, patience is going to be needed. And I think just the combination of trying to figure out what Giannis is going to do and what's out there in the trade market will kind of dictate what happens on the draft day. And that's going to make it really funny when we trade for Chris Paul 12 hours from now. And uh, by the time this podcast goes out, Chris Paul is going to be our lead point guard. So look out for that. Woohoo. Also, I, <laughs> uh, PSA to teams. I know Russell Westbrook's available, but if you, you can't even say he, he's not even going to be able to sell tickets for you next year because you won't be able to have fans and seats unless you're the crazy Dubs Nation where you have to. <laughs> Wear a mask literally every single place you want. You can go in San Francisco, but you're going to have lots of people in the stands. And we all know, yeah, rapid tests work perfectly. 99% mm -hmm. accurate. Good work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, if you're looking for a point guard who 
has questionable shooting ability, but pretty athletic for his size. Defensive so-so playmaker. So-so playmaker. Decent salary. Blows chunks in the playoffs usually. <laughs> Eric Bledsoe's available. And he and he only has two years left on his very reasonable contract. Mm-hmm. And then it's only $4 million partially guaranteed. So just, just want to put that out there into the ether that Eric Bledsoe's available for any teams interested in Russell Westbrook. Yeah. That was a good, I think hopefully John Horst just takes that segment, cuts it, sends it out, <laughs> reply all to all the executives in the league, and they all get a little bit of that. That's great. I don't even need a cut, John. But we are going to cut to our draft coverage, and it is time for us to talk about the 2020 NBA draft, where the Bucks have a single selection this year. It is 24th overall. I want to start off by saying I'm a little salty that it's 24th. Because the Pacers went into the bubble, and I'm pretty sure they were the pick was around maybe 18. We we confirmed right before we hit the record it was 19 before the playing game started. And and then when the bonus <laughs> went down, I was all excited, thinking, that, "Oh, it's not gonna. Oh, they're gonna. It's only gonna get better from here." But yep. no, stupid Pacers had to overperform in the stupid seeding games and push it all the way to 24, while all these other picks you know, in the lottery, stay the same, but don't worry. The seeding games do matter for everyone, everyone mm-hmm. down there. Let them, you know, just beat up on the Wizards because their pick doesn't matter, but mm-hmm. it'll affect the Bucks pick. Whatever, little salty about it. But what I want to talk about with you two is because we're, no, I wouldn't say any of us are experts in terms of specific prospects, but we'll get into some that the Bucks are talking, thinking about later. I want to talk to you first about so far, John Horse's approach to the draft, which has been pretty minimal. He, I think the big takeaway I had when I looked at his draft history was he has very little draft history. So running through it for the folks, he took over in 2017, drafted DJ Wilson, 17th overall, made a trade for Sterling Brown, who was selected 46th overall. In 2018, he drafted Dante DiVincenzo, 17th overall, no second-round selection. 2019, as... Uh, as we touched on earlier, you, you traded uh, a pick to traded that pick to the Pistons as part of the Tony Snell trade to offload salary. So very early returns, but I don't know, Riley, what have you thought if you have any takeaways from how John Horst seems to have approached the draft up to this point? So if you look at the three drafts and I, I have them listed right here in front of me, all three of them are like totally different phases of team building. So the first one, the DJ Wilson, Sterling Brown. So that still had Jason Kidd around. And there's, it's a little unclear, like whether or not DJ was actually a Jason Kidd influence pick. Cause wasn't there news that Jason Kidd flew to California to like see G- DJ do like a private workout or something before they drafted him. I don't, I believe there was something along those lines. I could be totally making that up, but that feels correct. And so DJ Wilson, like, this is like you're <laughs> we're coming off the John Hammond high of like lanky dude who might be able to like shoot the ball or like do a little bit of everything. And Sterling Brown was sort of a follow on from the Malcolm Brogdon pick where it's like, let's go for a guy who kind of has a pretty diverse skill set, could probably contribute pretty quickly because I think he was a bit older coming out of the draft as well. Um, so that was like, okay, this is like almost like John Hammond light. We're still sort of figuring out what who stays, who goes, what's the core of the roster. Let's add like a ostensibly high upside guy, even though obviously DJ ended up not being all that high upside. Dante pick, that's like a, 
I don't know how to really, at the time, everybody can go back and listen. That was probably one of our first podcasts in the newest iteration of the Brew Hoop podcast. Um, unsure what to make of that pick at the time. It turns out it, it was kind of like a sort of win now-ish, like guy who can contribute right away all across the board. Um, that wasn't clear in 2018 just because Dante had the injury, but that was like, okay, we're starting to build into a team that really wants to compete. Um, we're maybe have like aspirations with the new coach that might have also been like a Mike Boonholzer influence picks. And now we're like drafting for now. And then 2019, we get into the Eastern conference finals. We lose. It's like, well, we have to upgrade immediately on the roster. We can't do a draft pick trade it for some, um, some cap relief. And then we can resign everybody essentially. So I'm not sure what to make, or if there is such a thing as a John Horst philosophy, it seems like, he's willing to change what his priority is based on where the team's immediate goal is. It's not so much, it doesn't seem like building deep into the future. It's a lot of what can we do immediately to help the team out. And Dante kind of fits that a little bit just because he's contributed uh, when he's been able to play, especially this past season. And then obviously re-signing guys like Hill, re-signing Brooke and everything that keeps the team competitive now. But overall, I'm not sure if we can say he has a philosophy. Um, whether he was a new GM, influenced by the coaches, uh, all that sort of stuff. I, I can't tell what to expect from him besides trying to fit the current team philosophy. And if that's the case, I think we could probably say that the tra- the pick is getting traded for immediate help. But I, I don't know if that's changed calculus since we got bounced again in the second round this past time. So that, it's hard to get a read. It really is, I think. Yeah, I feel like... It's been a mixed bag with all of his draft picks because you look – it's kind of tough because DJ Wilson obviously has not turned out to be a good pick at all. But how many players after him have really had – you know, like the first guy I think of is TJ Leaf, who was picked a pick after him. And it's like, well, he's not – he hasn't been great either. It's just kind of tough where you look at all the players selected after DJ and it's kind of tough to see who really was even good at that pick at that point. So that pick was kind of a – you hope for the best, and it failed. It's not like Rashad Vaughn, and then you see someone like Bobby Portis drafted right after. Bobby Portis was at least a respectable player. Just just for the just for the record books, um, John Collins was drafted after OG Ananobi was drafted. Jared Allen was drafted. Kyle Kuzma was drafted. Josh Hart, Derek White. Wait, this was in DJ's draft. Yeah, this is all in DJ's. No, well, draft. I'm wrong there. Semi okay. who kind of sucks, but you know, I think yeah. I think the OG selection is the one that definitely people seem to call out the most um but also i think that would have been a risky pick for him given og i think was coming off an acl tear and uh certainly horst probably had just gone through some of the jabari parker stuff so i think for him that was probably something that scared him off yeah but the john collins one okay yeah that's uh that doesn't look good and jared allen i mean it was tough with yeah, Jared Allen and John Collins are probably the two that you look at. It's like, well, shit. Okay, so I'm wrong on that point with 2017. 2018, I mean, we see what Dante can do, and we at least know that a healthy Dante is a rotation-level player in the NBA, which is really all you can hope for when you're drafting relatively that late in the draft. Sure, you could get someone like Kevin Herter, who was a sharpshooter, and that would have been great, but I don't think you could complain too much about Dante's pick not of a second round pick probably hurt more than anything else. And then you look at last year, we weren't really sold on most of the prospects going into it. Kevin Porter has turned out to be a decent player in flashes for Cleveland. So maybe that would have been nice to have him. 
would the Bucks have even drafted him if they kept the pick? I don't know. But it was kind of key to get off of Tony Snell's salary because I, if they had decided to keep Tony Snell and then sign Chris Middleton and not keep Brogdon, good God, Bucks Twitter would have set itself on fire and just firebomb everything possible. So, you know what? I'm okay with them salary dumping that. It's just tough because there's really not much you can really judge. I mean, yes, 2017 is probably the year where you look at DJ Wilson and you look at some of the guys drafted after him and it's like, okay, that was a bad decision. But Sterling Brown, second rounder, you're not expecting much. He's done okay for a second round pick. You, Yes, we wish we could he could do more, but he hasn't let you down. Dante, as we talked about, I, I think just not having that second round, not having any second round picks the last two years is really the kind of like consequences of all the in like midseason moves that the Bucks have made. Go ahead, Riley. Yeah, I, I just think as we're kind of bringing it up here, what, what the drafts reflect is how quickly Milwaukee's time horizons shortened and how old we got as quickly as we did because we were in 2017. I mean, Jason Kidd was still a buffoon, but like we were like, oh, sort of like stuck in the mud, but potentially on the rise team. Maybe they just need a couple more players. So like we need to win immediately. And it just, the, the drafts reflect that. And that's typical. I mean, everybody says that, you know, when like LeBron was in Miami, it was like, well, the heat aren't actually going to make a pick here. They're going to just continue to like rebuild through the draft or like add guys through the draft. That's just the, the situation for contenders in the immediate, there are a couple of teams who I think maybe really believe in their scouting departments or like have a guy that they're really in on. But for the most part, I think a lot of competitive teams, when you're at the very top, there's a reason why they don't do a lot of picks and hold on to them at the end of the draft or end of the first round, just because you kind of boom bust. Um, there's different also aspects of like, if you do a first round pick, there's like contract implications there versus if you do like a second rounder. So there's just, it makes sense where they're not, drafting guys even though we might prefer it but that's just a reflection of where the team is at and that's you know i don't think that's necessarily horse fault that's just the reality of how you build in today's nba with like the cba the way it's structured yeah i think he got dealt he got dealt a little bit of a tough hand and i mean he was in the front office beforehand so I, I'm, I'm definitely not giving him a pass if, if people want to give him a pass for the dj wilson pick i don't really think that's fair because he was there the whole time he was with he, he was in the front office the whole time even when hammond left Obviously, he would have been helping with scouting. So clearly, he liked DJ Wilson. So, (laughs) well, I mean, whatever. If you really, if you really like that kind of a one-year wonder, that one was definitely a bigger miss for me in terms of the people that came after. When you're looking at 2018, I think this is still. I mean, obviously, they they only just played their second year, so there's still a, a huge mixed bag for these players. But nothing jumps out crazy to me. I mean, there's Herder, there's Lonnie Walker. It's like a whole mix of of like two guards that if I'm another team, I'm like, yeah, oh, I, I think the, these are all the other teams like Dante DiVincenzo, like, oh, Lonnie Walker, Kevin Herter, Josh Okoge, I mean, plays such great defense for the Wolves. He's a great two-way player. Aaron Holiday, oh yeah, he's intriguing. Landry Shamit, Anthony Simons. I mean, it, it's all this whole mix of, of guards and wings that I think other teams' fan bases are equally, probably have similar excitement to what some of us have for Dante, some of us have hope for Dante, although Dante shows up really, really well in the advanced metrics, um, probably boosted by Milwaukee's team. But I, I do think Horst was dealt a little bit of a tough hand because like you said, Riley, the timeline accelerated so rapidly that some of those bad contracts that Hammond had signed, whether it was Henson and uh, Delhi, um, really kind of hamstrung him and he had to kind of get rid of them right away, which made them forfeit a pick. And it was still a great, a great trade by horse, but 
you know, when you keep giving up, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword to me because when you keep giving up draft draft capital, I think sometimes it's tough to, you know, keep replenishing your roster with, with younger players. And it's one of the reasons I think maybe this pick this year is, is, is pretty important. But on the flip side, when you look at some of the players like Golden State has kept their first round pick for the last couple of years, and I, I can't really think of many reasonable players that they've picked late. Like they had Kevon Looney. He was pretty good, but it took him like three or four years to even turn to a decent player. Yeah. Uh, in 2018, they drafted Jacob Evans. I don't know if There's the Jordan out. Bell, like, oh my yeah. God, I can't believe the Bulls sold him the pick. What a bunch of idiots. But that was mostly clowning on the Bulls more than anything. Yeah, yeah. But so, so I mean, there's a couple ways it got. I mean, it, in the end, it all still comes down to can you nail the pick? Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know if we necessarily have enough confidence with horse draft history so far to say that he would be able to nail a pick at, at any stage of the draft. Yeah. Well, and I think that's what makes this draft. And there's somebody, I mean, we can kind of start getting into a little bit heading. I'm not sure. So just gut check right now before we even start discussing philosophy. Do you guys think the Bucks pick somebody and like hold on to them after this draft, like for the season? Or what do you think? Given everything we just talked about, the different, you know, shortened timelines, there's difficulties with the cap. Do you think the Bucks will make a draft pick in the 2020 NBA draft? Yes. I think from the sounds of it, other than Chris Paul, there wasn't that many trade rumors that were out there that would have had Milwaukee give up their first round pick. It seemed like you would give up Bledsoe, DJ, maybe you give up Dante, maybe give up Ursad, maybe give up George Hill. Like there were other players, but other than Chris Paul and maybe Drew Holiday, there's not really that many trade scenarios in which the Bucks are giving up their first round pick. Yeah. So I think they make the draft. I think they keep it. I think maybe Milwaukee trades that pick later on in the season or even later on in the offseason. I say later on in the offseason, like it's not just a month after. But I think they still make the pick. I think they try to keep it. And if unless they find a home run trade that they have to do, they'll keep it. Yeah, that's that's my gut instinct as well, is that they keep it. I'm kind of there too. And I think Kyle's point about the fact that the 24th pick hasn't been involved in a lot of talks. There's not a lot of like talks league wide where I'm hearing like the Celtics, because they have 30 first round picks, they want to package all of their 20 first round picks to like, you know, one team to move up. But otherwise, and that's like a tradition for Danny Age and company over there. But like, otherwise, I haven't heard a lot of other like teams a couple of the teams at the very top of the lottery wanted to move up or down but otherwise it's not a lot of movement so i think it kind of reflects one how uncertain people are about this draft and like that's all we hear about oh it's a weak draft and by week i think that necessarily means that like once you get past the top dudes it's like we have no idea what to expect from anybody and then the other aspect is these picks even though their contracts are guaranteed in a different way than second round picks um they are a lot cheaper for somebody who's kind of a little bit of like a lottery ticket for these teams. And so I think there might be given the uncertainty with revenue is like, well, we can get like a cheaper potential upside guy versus like trying to go through the uncertainties of free agency or trade. So I think I'm not sure if they'll keep the 24th pick, but I would be surprised if they didn't try to make at least some picks and like try and move around in the second round, just because those guys, the contracts aren't guaranteed in the same way. Um, so that gives them a little bit more flexibility if they, you know, need to cut guys to make some room or whatever. Um, and I think because there's so much uncertainty, uh, we can kind of get to like our personal draft velocities, but that's at that point, then you can just kind of be like, Oh, this guy seems like a decent fit at like whatever pick in the second round, maybe we'll go for that. So I'm not sure about the 24th, but I do think they will make some sort of draft pick and keep the guy one way or the other. I hope so. 
It's dumb, but yeah, I, like ha- I like having just a young guy to root for. That's not like Dragon Bender, who's already flamed out. Like I, I wasn't super excited <laughs> about that. Bring. I just want all this effort that we're putting in to be useful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also, yeah. that yes. Well, so, okay. So then let's talk about philosophy. I don't know, Kyle. When you think about who you typically go into a draft, you're like, oh, this is the kind of player I would want the Bucks to take. Are you like a best player available guy, a fill the hole guy? How, how do you kind of approach it? I would say best player available just because after the Rashad Vaughn draft pick, it <laughs> became very clear to me that drafting based on need is not a good idea. <laughs> Unless that need is glaring and you have a player that is like, you know, kind of like I think of last year where if you had the second pick, and John Morant is there, you need a point guard. Then you take John Morant, who is the best point guard. Or if you take the best big man available and you need a big man, I get it. But you just got to take the best player that's there because you can figure out what to do with that player later on. You can Whether they have to come off the bench, whether they start over someone, you figure that out later. If they're running the play right now, then that's already better than whatever draft pick that you're basing off of need and you need two years down the road. Maybe it takes them two years to develop. You know, I think that was kind of the thing with Giannis was you knew you had to put it, you had to wait a couple of years for him to be you know, a serviceable NBA player, but they understood that as well. Otherwise, you know, the draft in Jabari, he was probably the best player available. Yes, it was between him and Embiid, but Embiid had a lot of red flags in terms of his health and injuries. So you took Jabari. Jabari was the best player that was left. It made sense. Even in like historically past drafts, you look at the Michael Jordan draft. Hakeem Olajuwon was the best player. Houston took him number one. That made sense. Portland decided to draft based off of need. And there are some people that are saying that a big man of Sam Bowie was better than Michael Jordan, even though I think everyone would agree Michael Jordan is the best guard there. They still took more based off of need, took Sam Bowie. Obviously, Chicago had Michael Jordan. Or you look at Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant probably was a better player than Greg Oden. But Greg Oden was a talented big man. And it's hard to find a talented big man, so they drafted him. I guess drafting the best player that's there just makes it easier because you can configure a roster however you need to. And you can, and it's kind of a, if they can play right now, they'll play. That's what made Malcolm Brogdon so good is he was able to come on from day one and start playing and be good. You're not always going to get to Malcolm Brogdon, but that's what you hope for when you draft the best player that's there. I tend to kind of have a moving target here. So for me, if you're in the lottery, you go for best player available just because ostensibly, as long as your scouting department isn't totally out of sync with like (laughs) evaluating players, you should have a rough idea of like, here are guys who we think are most valuable regardless of their positions. Like you should have a rough idea of like how you're going to be ranking all the guys available. Once you get outside of the lottery, um, I mean, I too am a little gun shy after their Shad Vaughn uh, draft. I was just looking at that draft. He, the only guys in the first round that he did not play more minutes than were like RJ Hunter, Chris McCullough, and like Nikola Mulinatinov, who I don't think ever made it over from Europe for the Spurs. <laughs> so out of like first round guys, there were only three dudes who he's played more minutes than. So that was a really bad, like one of the worst whiffs you could imagine. But in general, I think once you get past the lottery, if you are somewhat confident, and this probably goes more so for like big men, just because those guys generally translate immediately a little bit more than like a guard who's trying to like catch up to the speed or like 
you know, figure out, especially if they're like a point guard, how they're going to fit with the rest of the players. Like that just takes time. Um, I'm okay drafting for a need. And like Kyle said, that probably ends up going towards like, you know, an older guy who's pretty well established might have like a red flag. I think the thing that held Malcolm back was obviously like the foot issues that everybody was worried about. Um, I just think it's okay to draft for is And like we were talking right before this little segment right here was like, we're competing in the immediates. If you think there's a guy who's like in his early twenties, like 22, who might be able to spell you a couple of minutes, like throughout the season and might be like halfway helpful in the playoffs. Like I don't mind making that pick um, if that's what you think. So it's a moving target for me. It switches over between lottery. And once you get outside of lottery, like, in the lottery a couple years ago in 2016 when we drafted Thon Maker, I mean, you could ask <laughs> best player available there or whatever, but like if that's what they were convinced, like, oh, this is the best player available if we project it out. I mean, that's where that philosophy comes in. And then once you get past that, like into the second round late first, then I'm okay with like need and hope you can kind of craft the guy um, into something you can use. Just try not to draft a guy who's like only skill is shooting threes. I appreciate that. I appreciate what they were trying to do, like young Rashad Vaughn. But like, if he could have two skills, I think that's a good basis upon which to build out from there. I was just going to ask that because I think that is a little bit of a philosophy that like later on in the draft, some people might be like, all right, well, we have this guy who has, who's toolsy. He's got a couple different skills that he's good at. And then we have this guy who is a proven elite three point shooter. Yeah. Which one are we going to take? Like the Dylan Windler type, that person that, I don't think he has panned out thus far in the NBA or the RJ Hampton or no, 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 not RJ Hampton. RJ Hunter. Hunter. Same thing. Yeah. Who was the guy that we got for the summer league team who like went to Wofford or whatever. And he was like a white dude who was like one of the greatest three point shooters in all of college history. And obviously flamed out because I haven't heard anything from him yet, but like, it's so like Gunner or something. What's the McGee? Hunter. Hunter <laughs> McGee, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Fletcher like, McGee was that. Fletcher dude. McGee. Yeah, he yeah. was the he was the shooter. I think Waffer had like a second guy as well. Or yeah. the Bucks Summer League team had a second guy. Correct. And Luke like May. so in no, this not fucking Luke May. <laughs> <laughs> Um so like that's like that taken to like the nth degree where it's like this guy literally does nothing else but shoot threes from half court. So like let's <laughs> don't waste a first round draft pick on that. Like we can look, we can find dudes on the free agent market for nothing who like essentially just shoot threes. We tried that, it didn't work out all that well. So um I would agree with you, Adam, that that's once you get outside a lottery, that's where the breakdown kind of is like, do you want like an elite in one skill? Or do you want decent, like a bunch of skills and see if you work it out from there, which is where like the Dante pick comes in. And I would say, you know, for all of us, I think Dante so far, I mean, it's, it's hard to evaluate, but like, he's still been a decent player. Malcolm, he could do a little bit of everything, like pretty decent player. Sterling, he can, he could do a little bit of everything. Like it didn't pan out, but like had a higher ceiling than other dudes that are like, this is a guy who shoots threes or like he's a excellent like just rebounder but like he can't play defense for you know the life of him or whatever so that's kind of where i think the team should be going and we'll see if they follow through with that i don't know it's hard to evaluate yeah i I mean obviously there's a middle ground between upside and fit i definitely feel a little as if i lean more towards upside a good example a couple years ago was the dante the dante pick which i was at at the time quite upset about but i I was very (laughs) mad that Zaire Smith went one pick before for one. Turns out pretty 
solid job not turns out they had to open a hole in his chest to save his uh yeah it didn't work out necessarily which is a tough break for him yeah mr sesame and then lonnie walker went right after and i was at the time i i would have much preferred lonnie walker he seemed like the kind of guy who was younger had a lot more seemingly a little bit more athletic ability a little bit better shooter off the bounce than dante so lonnie walker seemed like the upside pick and dante seemed a little bit more as if the fit pick, the fit was right. It sort of fit the pass, dribble, shoot mentality that they had. So that's a great example of one where I was, I don't know if I was wrong about that, but I probably was wrong in terms of lambasting the Dante DiVincenzo pick as much as it did, certainly. Uh, but I, I would say generally I lean towards upside. Yeah, I remember wanting my, what, Mikhail Bridges. I really mm-hmm. wanted him. And then Philly had to F it all up and then draft him. And then trade him to Phoenix. So then it was mm-hmm. like, well, this is pointless. Now I'm upset. And then Dante got drafted. I was like, fine, whatever. I can see it. I'm not mad at it. <laughs> but I was very upset that Philly ruined everything by taking the call bridges. That whole draft. And part of the issue, too, was like the ostensible reporting that like the Bucks tipped their hand that they wanted to trade back or whatever. And then like they effed it up or whatever. Like, I don't even know if that's true, but that was like part of the rumor around is like, oh, they effed it up because they like leaked it to some team and. I think Atlanta was like, oh, well, we're not actually going to trade them because whoever you're going to draft is like beyond our board or whatever. I think that's how it ended up. So that's why people got mad. But moving on to like specifically for this draft, we don't we can talk quick about players in particular that we watch two minutes of YouTube footage on if we want. But like instead of like a particular player, speaking of like upside, you know, specific fit right now, is there like a different type of player? Like for me going into this draft, I don't care who. But I think I'm probably leaning towards going for like a big of some sort. Um, and not that this is like a big heavy draft or anything, but I think that's the best opportunity for us to match up our draft horizon and our competitive horizon because we always have either Bucks of Yore in the form of Ursan as a backup at like for the big spot or we sign brothers of our twin like centers, or we get guys off the scrap heap at the end of the season. And that's all fine. And like, that makes sense. But like, I think if you want somebody who has a better chance of contributing in the immediate and also being a young guy with potential upside, I I prefer they kind of go for a big instead of a guard, just because I think that's too risky right now to draft a point guard and hope that works out. Like we hear all the time, like point guards for the most part are not good. They do not help out teams in the first couple of years. And assuming that's true and the Bucks don't magically find the one guy that bucks the trend, um, pardon the pun, uh, I think they would probably end up be better off going for a big, whether that be a forward or like a center, I don't know, one way or the other. But I don't know if you guys have like a specific like archetype that you're looking for heading into this draft. I think for this year, I have two types of players and they kind of actually they're kind of more one. I'd want either a combo guard. So someone that can play a little bit of two in case Wes Matthews doesn't come back, but can handle ball handling abilities. Like maybe Dante steps up and becomes the starter. And then you could have someone come in and then take over Dante's role slash George Hill or get a point guard. That is a playmaker. Obviously that's going to be a lot tougher because it's going to be really hard to find a decent playmaker this late in the draft. But I would say those are the two things I would want is someone that has playmaking ability or someone that can be a combo card. Interesting. I was, I'm surprised that you said you want a big Riley. I guess I was, I'm, I was leaning more towards guard, but then I I think if I were going into this draft, I would think 
I think we probably need a guard partially because I guess you can, I guess you can get guards off the scrap heap too. And yeah. you can always kind of find a random wing. Um, but I do feel like you could, you could potentially just find some random big, like I, I think Dragon Bender probably could have played like, okay. Backup minutes. I mean, if you're looking for, I think, I think the difficult thing for me going into this draft is, and I'm curious what you two think, whoever we draft, I, I don't think he's going to make any sort of difference in terms of our, he might make a minute difference in terms of our ability to win the championship, but realistically he is not going to, I mean, whatever Ty- Tyler Harrow did last year is I would say best case scenario for a rookie to ever impact a team's title chances. And I highly doubt we'll get anyone to that caliber, especially given he's barely getting tossed into trades for Giannis. So <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Devin Booker, apparently. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, so I, I would say that's one of the reasons when I when I was thinking about type of player, I was definitely thinking about someone a little bit younger, a little more upside, a little less plug and play, uh, like some of the some of the older players in the draft. And I was, uh, and I'm not sure who that player is, but I am kind of thinking that they just kind of go best player available, who's the best guy on your board, and when we reach 24, we got to we'll just take him and hope yeah. that it pans out. You're probably right, and we'll talk quick about some specific prospects, but when I was watching the YouTube highlights, there were not a lot of bigs in our range. I was like, wow, this guy's this guy laying the world on fire. So you're right that if they if they decide there is a guard who is slightly higher upside, I'm not going to be mad at it. Um, I, have, I guess um, when I'm thinking of, like, what are my concerns every time we go into the playoffs, like, one is that Eric Bledsoe is going to implode, but... I mean, there's a possibility that if you get a young guard, he also will implode in an even bigger way. Like, he won't even be able to defend sort of implosion. And, like, what am I always worried about? It's, like, the 15 minutes we have to give Urson and hold on for dear life to, like, get through those 15 <laughs> minutes and not lose them by minus 30. So it's like, oh, if we can, like, find, like, a 22, 23-year-old big who's, like, not awful, maybe we'll go for that. So that's really the only logic I have going on. I'm just trying to win now is all. So I, I, I don't – I think at this point, whoever they draft – if assuming they draft somebody to hold on to them, like you said, Adam, we're going to be like happy to have a new face instead of like trying to game plan out. Like, will George Hill make more than 35%, less than 40% of his threes? Like that's going to be what talking for the entire season is. So give me anybody to like, at least dream of some sort of future good or bad with them. Yeah. I would agree that this draft pick probably is not going to move the needle in terms of championship potential, but Depending, I mean, even if Giannis stays, you just need a young player on a lower salary that can come in, step up, and that can hell. Even if you want to trade that pick for someone better down the road, at least you then have a capable player. I think I think that's just the key thing. We just need a capable player at this point. If you can get as many of them as possible, whether you want to trade them or play them, that's fine. They just have to be a capable NBA player because all DJ Wilson is going to do is eat up salary and a bench spot. And, you know, that's just not fun. At least Sterling Brown, you can talk yourself into, well, we've seen what Sterling Brown can do, and he can do it. He just didn't do it consistently. That's still better than, you know, trying to draft someone in the first round that can't even get off the bench no matter who's coaching, no matter how many players get injured. And you guys are correct. We have to keep in mind, assuming Giannis signs the Supermax, we're going to have, like, $0 to give to anybody. So having a young guy who you can essentially then, like, You'll have his bird rights. You can like go above and beyond the cap or whatever to re-sign him. Like 
it's hard it's hard to imagine there being a guy at 24 who's going to be that type but like Malcolm Brogdon ended up being that type so it's not impossible so I would also you guys are probably convincing me live on the podcast that if there's somebody who you can not this season but like imagine a couple of years from now is helpful then I guess that's probably who you should be going for just because team construction is going to become a hell of a challenge once Giannis signs that super max deal. And we got both Chris and him on maximum contracts. Yeah, it's going to be tough, but is there any players that you guys see or had on your two minutes of YouTube perusing? Yeah, I can start. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to report to say much, know much about these players. I, I would highly recommend if you really want to learn about these players, Go to the Stepian and read Spencer Perlman's like 20 minute long, crazy in-depth articles. If you like the day after whoever the Bucks pick, if they pick someone, definitely see if the Stepian has a profile on him because that that stuff is in depth and Spencer does a great job with him. Anyway, the players that I looked at, and the first one I would say actually both of these might be a little iffy, but I think all of us tried to look at prospects that might be in the Bucks range. So in both of both of mine might be a little iffy because I've seen them drafted much higher but the first one i had was cole anthony who is point guard out of north carolina and when i watched him so one of the things i was thinking about was when i watched him and i didn't compare i didn't watch a lot of uh kobe white at north carolina but i was thinking about kobe white i looked at the shooting numbers they were like pretty similar in terms of around 35 percent from three and 78 percent from the free throw line so no great shakes, but a lot of shots that Cole Anthony was taking were the kind of shots that we want our point guards to be taking. So it's off the dribble, tough threes in the pick and roll. He gets right around his screen and then takes a pull up, pull up three pointer and he's able to make it. So he's taking tough shots, seems to be able to run the floor pretty well. One thing that scared me was that his highlight tape didn't show any passing, um, which is fine. I mean, you know, he averaged like four assists or something per game. So clearly he can pass. But when I watched some of that, that wasn't like super impressive. So I don't know if he's a super high level playmaker, but coming out of high school, he was like the number three prospect in the country. So there's a little bit of pedigree there. So he was someone that stood out if I was thinking of someone who's young and we would want to potentially shoot from from deep and have have some of those kind of skills available to him. And then I'll go quick through my other guy who I was just watching tape, uh, not tape. I was watching a YouTube video of this dude <laughs> right before the podcast, Alexa. Pokusevsky, he's like he, he's like eighteen. He's barely eighteen. He is a European uh, seven footer with a seven three wingspan. Rail thin, weighs like two hundred pounds. So obviously, mm-hmm. going to have to put on an incredible amount of weight. Definitely could fall into the trap of being the you know the the Euro Darko or whatever and just fail miserably. Yeah. Uh, was compared to Dragon Bender, which is scary. But the thing I kind of the thing I kind of <laughs> liked about this guy is. When I was watching him, he didn't look at all like a seven footer. Like as I watched him, I honestly couldn't believe he was seven foot one because he just didn't look it. Uh, but the way he moved looked a lot looked a lot more like a six six guy. I mean, this guy was dribbling pretty competently uh, into into a couple European. All right, I see Riley. <laughs> so what you're telling me is, what if Thon Maker no, was Serbian? No, no. <laughs> look, I knew you would bring this up because I I and I did my work. I went back and watched Thon McCourt tapes of, <laughs> you, of, of before he was drafted as well. And there is a 0% chance that Thon McCourt could have made any of the types of passes that this dude was making. Okay. <laughs> Thon had – his hands were terrible. He couldn't dribble. And the few times he did dribble, 
he just happened to get like crossover one dude, yes. and yeah. and that was about <laughs> it. This guy looks incredibly more competent, and I I know I'm getting I'm drinking the Kool Aid now, but I, I swear I went back and watched the Thon tapes because I knew that that would be asked, and it's exactly what jumped to my mind, and I thought he looked significantly better with the ball in his hands as a passer and as a dribbler. So anyway, those are my two guys. And I'm glad you brought up Thon. Yeah, that's the thing. There was another <laughs> French guy who was like, I don't remember. I was just scrolling through Twitter. Someone was like, oh, this French guy made like six shots over Rudy uh, Gobert in like a pickup game or something. I was like, what if Thon Maker but French? That's so like every dude who has like a slight handle and can shoot a three who's like really rail thin. I'm like, it's just Thon Maker. That's what that is. So I'm not impressed. Um, I, I'm just going to run through my four guys. So when I when draft time comes around, I could go to the Stepien, I could go to the Ringer, and I do for information, kind of get an idea of who these guys are. But the person I trust most is my dear brother, Jacob, um, who ostensibly watches more sports than I do and has an idea who any of these players are. So I sit down before the draft and I watch these YouTube highlights with him. And he, he and I react and go, oh, wow. He made that three. Look at that. Oh, he dunked it. So that's like the extent of my <laughs> draft coverage. So the four guys he, he had me watch were Isaiah Stewart out of Washington. Uh, I think he's he's one of those bigs. He has no lift. He when he like got <laughs> off his feet. He his vert was like three inches. I was like, what is happening? And like I think in the ringer they describe him as like he has an old school interior offensive style. Which I mean, <laughs> I don't know why my brother had me watch him, but it, I don't know. he was like a big beefy guy. I was like, okay, if we want just like a dude who's gonna shove dudes out of the way with his arms, that's cool. So that was one guy. Uh, Tyrell Terry, um, this was before Terry shot up from like late first rounder to like first overall pick over the past two weeks. Um, but at the time it was like, oh, this is like the guard option out of Stanford. Um, young, he's got like the, everybody's always looking for like the next Steph Curry range. So that's why like, um, why can't I remember his name in Atlanta right now? Um, Trey Young, sorry. Um, so that's like Trey Young was like, oh, he has like the range from three. Um, he can do some playmaking. And to Trey Young's credit, he's like a really good offensive player. So this is like, oh, with Terry, he's got the range and, you know, he's small. It'd probably be a problem on defense. But if you're looking for your lead guard at the time, at least it seemed like, okay, this is like an interesting option. I'm not sure if he's going to be available just because he's really shot up some of the lists. Um, Jaden McDaniels also out of Washington. I'm guessing my brother watched a lot of Huskies basketball this year for some reason. <laughs> um, Jaden gave me a lot of DJ vibes where like, he's like six, nine lanky can sort of shoot the three and like seems athletic, but he uses as athleticism to like do a lot of layups. He never, I think I had to watch a 20 minute video and it took until like minute 13 to see him dunk the ball and like transition. I was like, okay, so this is a dude who like has a lot of athleticism, can shoot the three, but is like afraid of making contact or that's just not his game. And I'm, we've experienced that with DJ for years now. It's like, I'm probably don't need that. So I'm really out on Jaden too. Last guy, Jemias Ramsey out of Texas tech. Um, he's like, I think somebody described him as like a fearless shot maker, which to me is like ball hog and guy who like <laughs> doesn't know when to move off the ball. But to his credit, um, he's got like a lot of more. He was like a decent defender. He's the combo guard kind of feel. So if you could harness his ability to like, it seemed like he had ability to shoot the ball from all three levels of the offensive floor and was an okay defender. Um, 
the main issue is like he just really loves holding onto the ball. And like there were so many times where he would have the ball and he'd just look off teammates all the time. And like because it was Texas Tech against like some D2 team, he could just <laughs> blow past dudes and dunk the ball. I was like, oh, that's cool, I guess. Um, so all four of the guys that I watched uh, tape on, Tyrell Terry was probably my top one, but he's not going to be available. And everybody else, it's like, I don't know, which I think is pretty indicative of the end of the draft in general. So that's that's my reporting. It's it's nothing crazy, but uh, I don't know. At least I watched some stuff. Now here's yeah. a draft pick. Here's somebody I'm looking <laughs> for. Here's someone for the 20, let's see. It'd be like 2040 something. 2047? <laughs> Would it be? <laughs> No, no, that's no. It'd be like twenty thirty seven. Yeah, twenty forty, twenty thirty seven. Sitting at my lap, but I had mainly two players that I actually watched and paid attention to. This one also is a European that. Well, okay, he's from Argentina, plays at Barcelona. Skinny, nineteen year old, able to you know run the floor. Looks to have some decent defensive tools. Played in the third division of their country's uh, league. Um, so just to give you that idea, instead of Thon Maker vibes, I'm not saying he's Giannis, but Leandro Bolmaro is his name. He plays at Barcelona. Again, probably spent more time playing for their B team than their actual team. But thanks to the people at Peachtree Hoops who did a good job breaking down some of his defensive skills. And the thing that really stood out was he's actually a pretty competent defender. And I think that's something that could be really useful down the road. His footwork was good. He was able to fight through screens. I think the tough part with younger players is when they get screened, they probably are wanting to switch the screen compared to trying to fight through it. And with Budenholzer's system, fighting through screens is going to be more important. And I, he just was able to do that. He seemed to, he just seemed to defensively be able to get it. And I think playing against actual adults will help as well. You know, you get a little bit, it's a little bit more physical. You know, we saw Luka Doncic. He was able to kind of seamlessly transition to the NBA because he's played against adults for like four or five years prior. So Balmaro looks, he's primarily going to be like, he's a six, six guy that can play guard. It's kind of fits more of my combo guard need also looks to be more of a floor general and a passer. That was something that also stood out to me and something that I was intrigued about. I think the winger said, you know, he has shades of Joe Ingles and Evan Turner, which the first player, yes, sign me up if he can get his jump shot down. The second player scares me as long as the Bucks don't pay, you know, a terrible salary. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he just looks to be someone that he's a good. He seems to be a good defender. He seems to be good off the ball and cut pretty well. Uh, one of the things that I notice is his ability to with the ball in his hand. He seems to just be able to make plays and make passes that Bledsoe hasn't been able to make and Giannis can make every once in a while. So, and he's good with either hand. So that's helpful as well. So that was the first guy I looked at. The second guy is a big, this one's a little bit more of a risk, but his name is precious. Achuiwa. He played at Memphis this past year. He's six, nine, he's 225 pounds, but he has a seven, two wingspan. So he definitely would fit more. The he's a big in today's NBA terms, Kind of not kind of reminds me of a Bam Adebayo in terms of just more like positioning and build and kind of style of play. He's very much a energetic big that's going to be like he's going to run the floor. He's going to potentially cause chaos defensively. He can't shoot. That that was one thing that they said, like he cannot shoot the ball <laughs> to save his life, which that's always encouraging to look at. I think he only shot like 60 percent for the free throw line. 
he's not going to be a good scorer, but he's going to be the kind of guy that he's an athletic enough defender who can really cause chaos and can guard, you know, the Bam out of Biles, or if Budenholzer gets his act together, and this guy turns out to be real pretty well. He can guard like those Jimmy Butler, even Kevin Durant type of wing players and kind of take that load off of Giannis. I, he's a good rebounder, which again, in this system, you're going to need. So those are the two players that I kind of looked at. I was like, well, maybe, I mean, Balmaro is definitely a, he's going to need two, three years to be really useful, but he can, at, he at least showed shades that he's not going to be a complete terrible player. While, Achiwu is more of a he can come off the bench, just run around, do stuff. I don't need him to I don't need him to score. I just need him to run around and cause chaos defensively. Um shades of James Johnson and Montrez Harrell. So that also was an encouraging sign as well. But those are the two players that I saw. The other one that really was intriguing was RJ Hampton, just because I actually knew who that name was, and he was, you know, at least around Milwaukee's range. I was like, oh yeah, I've heard of that guy. He could be something, but I think he would just be one of those where because it seemed like he was, if he had stayed in college, he would have been the surefire pick and decided to go and get paid and play in Australia along with LaMelo Ball that it kind of hurt his draft stock because, again, he's played against adults, so it's kind of tougher than college kids. But he's just kind of one of those guys where if he could put it all together, he could be a very useful player in year one. But that's a big if he could put it all together. So. Those are my three. I had a big, I had a guard, and then I briefly looked at a guy that I heard of. I would say out of the players that we've all said, Cole Anthony would probably be the one that I would hope the Bucks would draft. That is realistic. I think Tyrell Terry would be great, but I don't think he's going to fall that far at this point. So Balmaro definitely is interesting to me. I'm, I'm probably going to see what the hell he does regardless of where he gets drafted because, I mean, some are saying that he could – be somewhere in the 17, 18 range. And some say he's a second round pick. Yeah. yeah and if anybody out there disagrees with our selections, uh, let us know in the comments of uh, the <laughs> post that will go up with this podcast. Let us know who you actually would like to draft because you're probably far better informed than we'll ever hope to be. And that's okay. A hundred percent. The one thing I will say, two things real quick. If we do get a guard, this is a small, maybe difficult request, but I just want someone who has a tight dribble. I don't know why, but I I don't trust I don't trust Dante. I don't trust Pat. I don't trust Sterling. I don't trust any of these guys as they're just dribbling into the teeth of the defense. Mm-hmm. I just I just want someone who can really hold on to the ball as they dribble through the defense. And the other thing I was thinking about is it does feel as if Horst has typically gone for guys who go off in the NCAA tournament. If you remember, DJ Wilson went off yeah. that year, and then Dante yeah. went off and happened to wind up on the Bucks. Yeah. So, <laughs> Both of them, yeah, yeah. Uh, doesn't have that crutch this year, so I, I I know there weren't a lot of games played in conference tournaments. Hopefully, he didn't take too much away from the you know two games the Big Ten played or something. But uh, we'll see if that we won't be able to say that he picked the tournament star or whatever. The the one thing about him picking guys who did really well in the NCAA tournament was like at least. John Horse made it feel like it was me as the GM because I would do the same thing. I'd be like, well, I don't want to do all this scouting stuff. So let me just sit down for two weeks. Everybody else is at home or at their office place, like watching the games. Like it, in a way it made Horst feel relatable. I was like, that's me and behind there. I was just like, oh, that guy's pretty good. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's draft him. So I will miss that a little bit. The everyman aspect of John Horst GM tenure. 
I'm pretty okay with it with him not being like <laughs> I, I draft like Riley Feldman does. <laughs> Just at home. No offense to you, but I'm pretty okay with him yeah, doing yeah. something. Different. It's probably for the best. You're right. Uh, all right. Well, that was our that was our draft talk. Like Riley said, comment uh, comment in the article on, on Brew Hoop and let us know who you would have picked. Uh, right now, we're going to take a quick break and then close it out with our miscellaneous subject. So stay tuned. All right, and we're back. It's time for rapid fire questions. Kyle, you're taking the lead this time. I am. So the first question um, I have is: You're going on a vacation. What is your preferred method of travel? I feel like I've kind of we've kind of had this discussion in the past, but say you're going to you're going. I don't want to say depending whatever. Think of a vacation. How are you going to get there? What is your preferred way of doing it? I used to be big fly guy, but lately I've been doing a lot of a lot more driving, especially in the pandemic. And I'm I'm used to sort of commuting from Philadelphia down to Charleston, South Carolina, where my in-laws are. So I spent a lot of time in the car with my wife, and I've it sounds sick, but I've grown to like it. So uh, I, I've actually I've actually found uh, just road trips to be a lot more fun, especially lately. I've only done one really long road trip from uh, Milwaukee down to Florida. And that was cool because we had the car. Otherwise we were like too young to like rent out a car without getting slammed with fees or whatever, like (laughs) under 25. So here's an extra $1,000 to rent this car. Um, So that was nice. But generally I I'm team flights. I'm increasingly like somewhat, uh, I don't know, concerned about like the impact of flying and all that sort of stuff on like global warming. So that always is kind of in the back of my mind. But like, if I'm going somewhere, I don't mind driving, but generally let's fly there. Let's get there as soon as possible. And if they have either rental or like the couple of times I've been to Europe where like the train and public transit systems pretty robust, like I've had some amazing, like between countries, like train trips, like just some of the scenery you can see. So um, flying to get there as quick as possible. And for a lot of places, if you can do like a train, you get to see a lot of cool, like either locales or parts of cities and things like that. So those are probably my top two, if I had to choose. Yeah, I have a fear of flying. And as much as I fly and it's a lot easier, I'm too scared to do it. So I also, I will drive. It is trips are fun. It is a little strange that we're just in metal tubes in the sky. When you break it all the way down, you're like, all right, we're just, we're hoping this works. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> yeah, kind of more of a, as long as it doesn't crash, we're fine. But otherwise, yikes, that's still a possibility. But the second question I had, um, when do you find it acceptable to start celebrating Christmas? Uh, Black Friday to me because, uh, so I'm team Thanksgiving, keep it as its own separate thing. That's all of you have November to celebrate the end of the fall. Um, everybody likes fall. It's kind of like between Halloween and Thanksgiving the day after Thanksgiving. Um, I don't mind people going out, putting up decorations, doing the shopping. I know 99.1 back in Milwaukee, they turn on the Christmas music the day after Thanksgiving. So to me, that's, that's when it's acceptable. Anything earlier than that. And I'm, I'm looking at you a little bit sideways. I think in people's personal homes, they should celebrate anytime after Halloween is fine by me. I find the holiday season to be delightful in so many ways. And I I always find December to fly by too quickly before I have a chance to do all the things I want to do, even though I won't do much in in November. I know of it, but uh, corporate wise, please, please wait until after Black Friday. Having worked in a mall uh, for many years, I cannot stand the Christmas music for it just started unseasonably early. So corporate wise, please wait until after black Friday, but personally 
Start whenever you want to. There, I'm. I am have Thanksgiving, then do whatever you want, regardless. This year, though, I'm surprised there hasn't there hasn't been as many Christmas lights up as I expected, especially considering there's a pandemic and what else are we gonna do? I'm surprised at the lack of Christmas lights, which I'm okay with, but it is shocking. Next question I have. With the new releases of the Xbox Series X and whatever it is, and the PS5, if you had to go, if there is one game system that you can go back and remember, like, oh, this is the game system that I am going to spend hours in line or do whatever it takes to pre-order or go through 80 different websites to order it, what is that console? To me, I'm going to say the PlayStation 2 because we had the original PlayStation, which was good. But the beauty of the PS2 was, I think at that time, like almost every PlayStation 1 game was backwards compatible. So you didn't have to like mess around with it. You had the whole like set of games you get for the PlayStation. And that was like the first when I started really gaming. Uh, I'm, I'm like a, not a closeted gamer. It's not, I'm like not ashamed of it. But um, at that time, I was like, like 12 13 i think when the play is playstation 2 came out and i remember we got it on christmas i was like oh my god i can't it was like one of those like so totally typical like can't believe the consoles here that sort of stuff so i would say the playstation 2 great games um that was like before having to play online which is mostly toxic and annoying for the most part so um and it was a lot of like playing games with my friends or like with my brother and i really enjoyed that so playstation 2 for me i i probably would say in terms of one that i would have done it for maybe three, maybe GameCube. I, but the one that I actually did it in practice for was the Wii. I was all <laughs> yes, in on the yes. Wii. And it was, yeah. I, I waited in line at Best Buy. Like, out there, like, Mom, you got to drive me. They only have a few <laughs> of these in stock. We got to get them. Don't worry. You can play it, too. We fit. It's going to be yeah, perfect yeah. for the whole We're going to play Wii Bowling for hours. Don't worry. Oh, man. Yep. That was a big L for me. Yeah, <laughs> that was the Wii is definitely up there. I'd also say the N64 as well, especially just the games that came out for it between Super Mario, you had Super Smash Bros., you had Legend of Zelda. I think I probably would have done this for the N64 because I would be like, look at all these games. They're great. There's four controllers. There's Pokemon. Like, you can, everyone in the family could play. But then, <laughs> then. Then you grab the controller, you're like, this is a crime against humanity. What's happening yep. here in my hands right now? So that would be the only thing I'd say against. Fun one that came courtesy of Emma. Growing up, basically in middle school or early high school, what was your go-to clothing brand? Was it American Eagle? Was it Aeropostale? Was it Amber Crombie Fitch? Were you Hollister Hipster? Which one? Yeah. yeah. Uh God, I'm trying to remember what all my polos were. I honestly, I think I was Aeropostale. I think we, I, I don't think, I think my mom didn't want to spend the money on American Eagle or Hollister, and definitely not Abercrombie. What? Like, I don't know this history of Old Navy, but I remember if we were like gonna get styled up, we were like we're going to Old Navy. So that would be like I don't know if that's technically like one of the brands you're that talking works. about, but. That, that's the only place. My mother, she loves talking about how her first job was at The Gap, but for some strange reason, we never shopped at The Gap whenever we had the opportunity to do so. I'm guessing that was not a great experience for her, or she just didn't like it. So we, Old Navy, for like from what I can remember. Otherwise, I mean, I don't know if we necessarily had a brand, but if I was to pick one, that would probably be the one. Yeah, I was Aeropostale and American Eagle for sure, but my mom also loved Kohl's. 
So any other brands that calls mm-hmm. that one yeah. what? She, urban pipeline, baby. Yeah, urban you know, pipeline machines are what it's all about. <laughs> She had the cold cash. She had the cold gift card. Like anytime, cold 15, cash, 20, 30, let's go. Yep. Legendary. Tony Hawk. <laughs> oh, yeah, great line there. <laughs> if, we, if we felt spendy, kind of the same with you, Adam, like maybe Aeropostle for sure, maybe American Eagle if we were feeling spendy. Definitely not Abercrombie or Hollister. Did you guys ever work at a retail place? Did you ever work retail at a place like that? So I worked at Kohl's for four years. Uh, so I could like, I couldn't do it anymore, but there were all the exclusive brands like Simply Vera, Vera Wang, um, Jelly Beans. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure if Urban Pipeline was an exclusive, but like I could name all the exclusive brands that they had. Um, and it was a mixed bag <laughs> working at Kohl's. Um, it, it was fine, but like it's retail work. So I don't, did you guys ever work retail at all? I mean, you said I you worked did. at a mall, Adam. Um, I was at Sports Authority for like a year and a half. Which was okay, but you know, looking back, I didn't really get the discounts that I would want it. Like it was like, yeah, you get some discount, but it wasn't enough to like justify bank for something. Like I would have been nice, like buy a new set of golf clubs or mm-hmm. like shoes, but it wasn't enough to like make the discount worth it. <laughs> Plus, it always just got to like that time of year where parents were just like, I need to get these shoes. I'm like, okay, well, like what sport do they play? Oh, this one. Okay, but it was just like me asking like 50 questions and getting nowhere. And I was like, you know what? Here, buy the shoe. This is probably the best part. Here's some cleats. I worked at Auntie Anne's. Hell yes. If you, so my my wonderful fiance, she's a big Auntie Anne's fan. It's a classic every time we go to the mall. Do you have, I know they have like 60 pretzel flavors now. Do you have a go-to? Are you a traditional, you know, salts with a thing of cheese or what's your go-to? So personally, I had one that I would make almost every shift, and it was the almond. I would make almond nuggets, which which was not on the menu. It's one of those secret <laughs> menu things. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, no. So I, but the almond pretzel with uh, with caramel dip is completely underrated. No one gets it. No one thinks about it. But it is just God. That's good. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the cinnamon fun. sugar was my favorite. Anytime you can get the cinnamon sugar, yes. <laughs> But last question, in honor of the draft, I know we kind of talked about it, Adam, when you mentioned the Dante pick, but was there a draft pick that had you mad online, mad that you called into a local sports show, or had you vent to your friends, went on Facebook? Like, was there a certain draft pick where you were just angry? I got one. The Giannis draft. Uh, at the time, that was the first draft where I had, like started my own little blog, and I like put in time to like do a breakdown of like Kelly Olynyk and Dennis Schroeder, um, and I was like, oh, I like know like some of these guys, and me, <laughs> me and my brother went to the beat ups in Pewaukee. And we sat there and they drafted Giannis. I was like, I have no idea who this guy was. And like, we walked out, I was like, I can't believe we just blew the draft. Like we just <laughs> drafted some dude who's like, who's highlight videos or YouTube videos from like his high school gym or whatever at the second level of Greek basketball. So I admit fully because I was an idiot and had only like done breakdowns on like three players and one of them was not Giannis. I was like, I can't believe John Hammes screwed us again. So uh, that I was mad at the, the Giannis draft. Um, and that was probably more of a reflection on my idiocy than anything else. 
I was I was quite upset at the Thon Maker pick. We, I was with all my friends. I mean, he was supposed to go forty. When when they said he went ten, I just remember viscerally standing up, jumping on my chair, and whipping my pencil across the room, and just shattered into pieces because I, I we all of us were just absolutely irate that they made that that much of a reach. So definitely Thon. I probably would go the. Okay, it was like the three-way trade where it was like Jimmy Fredette and whoever else. And I was just – because I didn't realize it was part of the trade. I just heard they drafted Jimmy Fredette, and I was like, are you effing kidding me? Like, all this I can do is shoot. He's not that good. Like, if I wanted a white guy that can shoot, I will call J.J. Redick. I will deal with Mike Dunlap. I will get anyone else. Mm-hmm. And then I found out it was part of the trade, and I, like, eventually backed down from it. I was like, it was still a stupid pick. <laughs> like, I don't know why anyone would draft Jimmy Fredette. That was my – that was for sure my – I was very annoyed with it, and I didn't know that it was, like, the actual trade part of the deal. Kind of similar to, like, how Dirk was picked. It was like the Bucks were never going to have him. We don't need to do it on this podcast, but in the future we should do a John Hammond draft retrospective just because that's an adventure. That's, like, you're going from – besides Giannis, is low to low to low in, like, the Brandon Jennings draft pick. Like, that's uh, that's what he's got. But it, what an adventure all those drafts – he did draft. He never traded away the picks. Somebody was coming in, and usually it was not the right person, but uh, a shout-out to John Hammond in drafting. But, yeah, so those are all the rapid-fire questions. Wonderful. Thanks, Kyle. Well, Riley, it's time for Vulture Talk. What is the situation with Giannis's long-term contract? Giannis sent it to Kumpo. Giannis. 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 It is time for Vulture Talk. Uh, it really oddly quiet this week on the carrying front. Uh, the only thing that I saw, and I'm not even sure if it came in this week, but uh, Ryan Hollins, also known as Ryan Hollister, uh, he did some sort of interview with a, I don't know if it was a CBS station or a station in the Bay or what it was, but he essentially went out on his sword or on a shield and he said, I want Giannis to get traded to the Warriors. I didn't bother listening because I'm not going to get cliffs, clicks to that kind of you know imbecility, but uh, unsurprising that he happens to be the guy waving the flag this week. Uh, I'm sure it'll be somebody else next week who wants to wave the flag for the Raptors or wants to wave the flag for the Mavericks or whoever. But uh, besides some simpletons being out there doing simpleton-type stuff, uh, didn't hear a lot. So we actually got a respite. We'll see, though. After this next week, once things start happening and trades and everything, and we kind of get an idea for where the Bucks are at, people are going to, on Saturday, be like the Bucks are either guaranteed to get Giannis, or if he doesn't sign the Supermax, they're like, they're doomed. That is what it is. So get ready for even more Vulture Talk starting next week. And to follow up on that, the recent Giannis comments, I guess while he was on vacation in Sweden, he talked to some person. Giannis, you're on vacation. I would not want to talk to the media, but that's just me. In which he said, yeah, with Milwaukee, I love it. Obviously, I want to win a championship. So the same stuff that he said. He also said, depending on what the Bucks do, we'll determine if I sign or not. And, of course, everyone freaked out. Like, this hasn't been said the last, like, year. Calm down. Giannis literally just said, if the Bucks make the right moves and make him a championship contender, I'll stay. If not, I'm out. Like, everything else he has said in the past year, if the Bucks don't screw it up, it'll be fine. So let's just all take a deep breath and realize everything is going to be fine. Nothing. Giannis is not saying anything new. Giannis has not said anything that's given new hints. It's the same stuff that's been said the past year. 
All right. You heard it from Kyle. Everything is fine. Yeah, we all know what that means. Everything will end up being on fire next week. And I will have to be here. I'm like, yeah, I got that wrong. <laughs> all right. Let's move on. Kyle, it's your film review time. So I didn't – well, I did watch a movie, but it's a Christmas movie, so I'm saving that till after Thanksgiving because, duh. But let's do a recap of The Great British Bake Off because this was quite the episode. Last week was the hottest day in the tent, so, of course, everyone had to work with ice cream, which was a flawed system. This week it was a little bit more low-key, so they made cheesecakes. I'm a big fan of cheesecake, so if you mess up a cheesecake, I find that as a personal insult. No one severely messed it up. There are some duds, but no one severely screwed it up, so good on them. Then it came to the technical, which I don't know what they were thinking with this technical, but no one did well. Everyone, It was terrible. Like Even the winner only won because it was like, it was it's a good at least. Like Everyone was terrible because the signature was a bad idea and something from like literally Pride and Prejudice times. Yeah, I agree, Sterling, but calm down. It was from Pride and Prejudice times. And then it got to this showstopper in which they had to do gelatin, which I don't know anyone that actually does gelatin anymore, but whatever. It was a good week, though, and I was very sad for the person that left, but it was, compared to last week, it was much more just survive. It was a just survive type of week. I'm always impressed with the number of people in the entire of the United Kingdom that are able to like get together each season and be like, here's like 15 people who can constantly bake things. Like I know one person who's like a good baker in my life, which I guess if you <laughs> split that out over millions of people, you can get plenty. But uh, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting premise in that they keep it going. It's a credit to them, I guess. I thank you, Riley, for saying I am a good baker. <laughs> I'm waiting for Kyle to send some goods my way. That's all. Christmas time's coming up. No pressure. Yeah, that's true. Maybe I'll, maybe, I'll do, maybe I'll do cookies or something. Who knows? Big brew hoop logo on them. <laughs> all right. Speaking of shilling for Brew Hoop, let's move on to the fountain pen <laughs> review. Yeah, I got uh, two two things this week. So one, we do have a new pen for the first time in a long time. Uh, second thing, last week, for those uh, regular listeners, uh, I reviewed the Robert Oster Signature Ink uh, Clearwater Rain. Um, I talked about it's a turquoise. I did a little sample of it, et cetera. And then I, I you know, made the claim that Mr. Oster, Robert himself, is uh, apparently like a hermit in Australia or whatever. Um, somehow, and I think we figured it out because uh, the article itself had Robert Oster tagged in it. Um, they, Robert Oster himself found the podcast, listened all the way or like found the segment at the end with, with it. Uh, he tweeted out a link on the Twitter account. Uh, I'm sure we could probably put the tweet up with the article that this goes up with, but um, he tweeted it to his one point or yeah, 1.5 thousand uh, followers to be like, hey, here's this esoteric uh, you know, podcast about some team in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, and they mentioned the, whatever the ink and loved it or whatever. He also, he messaged me super nice guy. It was like, it, it's sort of like, you know, you listen to like, Oh, Santa Claus is coming to town. You're like, yeah, sure. Santa's coming to town. And then Santa actually comes to town, you know, or like in that segment where we're like, Oh, I would love to go clubbing with Brandon Jennings. And then Brandon Jennings reached out. I was like, Hey, do you want to go clubbing with Brandon Jennings? <laughs> So that was kind of like the dynamic I was playing with. It was super cool. Um, he didn't, thankfully, didn't take any offense to it. Um, but, uh, it, it, you know, interesting. I would never have guessed that this podcast would lead me to be talking with one of the giants in the fountain pen ink space. But that's the the range of the, broad, uh, the Brew Hoop podcast. So um, super cool. Shout out to Robert uh, Oster. 
if people are interested, uh, go check out his website, go check out, I mean, there's hundreds of inks. So if you're at all interested, I can attest to the quality of the ink. Um, and then beyond that story, I actually got a new fountain pen this week. Uh, this week we are dealing with my Sailor Pro Gear Slim in British Racing Green. So this was an exclusive from a website called um, Gold Spot. Uh, it's Sailor is one of the big Japanese brands. Um, it's like them, Pilot, Platinum. Um, this right here, they're usually on the higher higher scale ends. This nib is, let me see if I can turn it. You can kind of see their little anchor there a little bit. Um, this is a 14 karat gold nib. Uh, so it was a somewhat expensive nib to be purchasing, but um, I have little hands. And so the slim is perfect for me. I can cap it, uncap it. It doesn't hurt my hand at all. Very light material, which is an issue with a lot of my other ones is because they're metal, they're heavy. And when they're heavy, they hurt your hand after you're right for a while. Um, I've only been writing it with for about 24 hours, but loved it so far. Um, couldn't recommend it high enough. If you have the money, don't spend the money. If you don't, you can get a lot of other ones for cheaper, but uh, the color was too good to pass up. This is my first sailor. Um, I'll kind of give it a try for a couple weeks and uh, maybe see if there are more sailors in my future. So highly recommend it. Probably, I say this after every single pen, but so far, probably the favorite pen I've gotten so far. So it's all my fun. A lot of fountain pen talk this week. Good stuff, I guess, hopefully. The people demand it. It gets the, it might get the most traction out of any segment that we do. Somebody, so I went, I went this morning to go look at the YouTube broadcast from last week and somebody in the comments, was like, Riley, Robert Oster is looking for you. He posted on Facebook or whatever. I was like, so then I think he ended up finding me on Twitter, obviously, but uh, yeah, it was, it was quite the crossover event happening. Oh, all right. Well, let's sail away from this podcast and call it a day. Time for the draft. It's going to be a wacky week. Lots of stuff happening this week. So stay tuned to brewhoop.com. We're going to have tons of draft coverage up. I'm sure there's going to be a ton of silly rumors, potentially trades. And then free agency starts on Friday, which is crazy. So stay tuned to brewhoop.com. You're going to want to be there. Go follow us on Twitter at brewhoop and subscribe to the podcast. Share it with your friends and family. Uh, Robert Oster, feel free to share it with the Australian basketball fans in your life. I'm sure there are plenty. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon.